You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I grew up uh, on a ranch, which means there was lots of animals and creatures and adventures to have. And uh, I can remember at times you'd find something in one of the barns or in a ditch or under a tree, and it's just sort of like this thing. You've never seen it before, and from a distance you can't tell what it is. And so that was always the two questions a little boy would ask, right? Well, what is it, and is it alive, right? And the boys, you know, everybody knows that the best way to find out what it is and if it's alive is to poke it with a stick. Um, Two things will happen, right? One is that if it moves, it's alive, right? If it doesn't move, it's dead. That's pretty simple. And then how it moves will tell you a little bit of like what it is, right? And so if it flies away, well, that was a bird. If it turns and tries to uh, bite your face off, it was a bear. And so you can tell the nature of the thing by what you poke it. When you poke it, what happens to it? And uh, I think that's a little bit of what we're going to experience here in James is the, the question of like when it comes to Christian faith, the kingdom of God, Jesus' people, well, what are they? And is it truly alive? Is it truly alive? Is it really real? Is it a living is it a living faith? And so I think that's what James is going to tell us, that when we receive pokes from the world, when we are provoked and challenged in certain ways in the world, those are designed to reveal what we are and that we're alive. And so he's going to tell us that when we receive the pokes of trials or prosperity or poverty or uh, opportunities to use our words, that when we're presented with those opportunities, we have an opportunity to then demonstrate whether we're spiritually alive, we have a living faith, or we have a dead faith. What is it made of? What is it? Um, Is it of Jesus, or is it not? And is it alive? Is it a living faith? And that's going to be the title of our series through the book of James. We're going to go real slow. You remember we were in the high gear through Genesis, going through multiple chapters at a time. Um, We only are going to get through multiple words at a time sometimes in the book of James. We're going to go real slow and we're going to unpack the intricacies of what James is teaching these people in these 108 verses. So we're calling this series Living Faith because that's really at the heart of this is what does it mean to have a living faith? What is it and is our faith alive? How could you tell? How can you tell if it's a living faith? When the world pokes us because it's never seen people like us before, what happens? Do we move? Do we move and are we real? What are we? And so I want to just look at really one verse, the first verse today, James 1.1. So you can read it there. You can see it in front of you. It should be on the screen, I think, as well. James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. All right, really tricky text today, right? Just the introduction And what I want to do today is actually just answer a few questions about what we're going to experience in James, okay? So I'm just going to kind of give you a framework on what to expect, and then we'll dig into into the meat of it starting next week. But this very first first verse uh, contains actually a lot of information that's really helpful in terms of how we're going to receive this book today. Uh, This book was written early on in the Jesus movement, probably the mid to late 40s. It could be the very first Christian writing that was circulated at the time, the first of the books of the Bible, um, and it's written by this guy named James. So the very first question we are, we are confronted with is, who is James? Who is James? So that's the first question I want to spend some time on this morning is, who's James? So very first word, James. Who is he? And uh, James, there's four different Jameses that are mentioned in the New Testament, at least four. 
and we can, by process of elimination, come down to what we believe to be James, the brother of Jesus. In Matthew 13, 55, we have this being said in the gospel about Jesus. It says, is, not, is this not the carpenter's son, and is this not Mary his mother, and are not these his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude? The book of Jude is written by one of Jesus' brothers. So we know that Jesus had a brother named James, and that he's the most likely writer of this book as you investigate the different Jameses. He's the only one that really fits the bill. Now, what's interesting about this James is he's really a surprising convert because he was Jesus' brother, Jesus' younger brother. And it says in John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So James is a bit of a surprising convert. The fact that he would be writing about Jesus is not what you would expect. He grew up with Jesus. um, And during Jesus' ministry, he was critical of Jesus. He did not believe in Jesus. He did not walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry. In fact, we see that, uh, that his brothers were saying that he was out of his mind. Even his own family didn't get it. We know that at the crucifixion in John 19.25, Jesus' mother is there, and it seems like she's the only family member that's there. Jesus has multiple brothers and sisters, and none of them even showed up on this day. And so Jesus actually entrusts the care of his mother Mary to Peter, uh, to John, sorry, to John, entrusts his care to John. Um, which means that there's an estrangement between the brothers. They're not with Jesus, and Jesus entrusts the spiritual care of his mother to John because his brothers don't believe. And so John takes care of his mother. And so he's a surprising convert in that all through the entire Jesus story, all the way through his ministry, his life, um, he is not a believer in Jesus. He has rejected his older brother and his claims to messiahship. But then we get this interesting note that Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians 15. And it says this, so this is writing many, uh, many years later, he's writing to the Corinthians talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And he has this interesting detail. So let me just read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, and in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, to all the apostles and all the apostles. It seems like that after Jesus rose from the dead, he actually personally found an opportunity to, to, to spend some time with his brother James. He actually went out of his way to go chase down his kid brother that had rejected him. And then the resurrected Jesus, it seems like James responds to that because then we see James showing up at Pentecost Just a few weeks later, Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we actually have a bunch of James in this passage. So Jesus appears to to James, and it seems like James is transformed. Jesus goes after his kid brother and specifically goes after him, specifically, as Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically goes after him for a reason. And it seems to be transformative because in Acts chapter 1, it says this, and when they had entered, they went into the upper room. So this is after Jesus ascended. He said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come and then you'll be my witnesses. And it says, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James. There's one of the James, not this one. And Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. James, the son of Altheus, different James. And the Simon, the son of Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. There's a third James. And then all these were one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together, together with the women and Mary, the, bro- the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
So Jesus' brothers had a turnabout. They were convinced by His resurrection, and they're actually with the church. They're with the 120 when they're gathered in the upper room. And so James is an unlikely, a surprising convert. He had grown up with his brother, wasn't impressed with him, and it wasn't until after the resurrection and an encounter with the resurrected Jesus that he's transformed and he's changed. And it seems like James lives with a humility about that the rest of his life. This humility that he didn't even see the Messiah for 30 years. And then the resurrected Christ came and called him, called him into service. And so we see James who will say, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't refer to him as his brother. The most important thing about James is his service to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. He's not my big brother. He's my Lord and my God. And so James is a surprising convert. He also becomes a respected pillar in the church. He becomes a leader alongside Peter of the Jerusalem church, that very first church that had all those converts in Acts chapter 2. It grows and grows and grows. Peter is kind of the figurehead of it, but James very quickly becomes a right-hand person involved with that. And in fact, when Peter gets thrown into prison and then an angel releases him miraculously, Peter goes and tries to find James in Acts chapter 12. So James is already seen as a respected pillar and leader in the church. He's the go-to guy for the church. He presides over the Jerusalem council in chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, which is a really significant event, where what happens is, is that Jewish, uh, most of the church has largely been Jewish to that point, but now Paul and Barnabas and others are going to Gentiles, and Gentiles are becoming Christians. They're being brought into this, and the Jews are wondering, well, what do we do? They should become Jews first, right? They should submit themselves to Jewish customs if they're going to receive our Messiah. And so this big conflict begins to brew among the Christians and among the apostles and among the evangelists. So what do we do with non-Jewish people who are coming to Jesus? Do they have to become Jewish to become Christians? And so they gather in Acts chapter 15, and they, get, they have a big meeting, and really the future of Christianity is at stake here as they try to discern what Jesus intended, what the Spirit is leading them to do. Is this movement a merely Jewish movement, or does it go beyond the bounds of of Jewish um, religion and festivals? And it is James who ends up rendering the verdict. As they hear the testimonies, as they debate the theology, he says this really fascinating thing. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and read it. I didn't intend to read it, but this is so beautiful. Acts chapter 15, tension in the air, arguments back and forth, all everybody wanting to honor God, everyone wanting to get the Christian thing right. Do Gentiles have to, have to be circumcised and brought under the Jewish law in order to be Christians? And here is what James says, verse 12, And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James, so James is sort of the one that's speaking authoritatively in this gathering. He says this, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And this with the words of the prophets agree, for just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment, here's what James says, the future of Christianity is on on the line here. My judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. We should not make it hard for outsiders, spiritual immigrants, to come into this family of faith but we should write to them to abstain from the things 
polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things that are being strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, and he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So essentially, let's ask the Gentiles to be respectful of the culture of the Jews and not make it hard by doing some of these things. But let's not place a burden or a barrier on Gentiles coming to God. So James, a very strictly Jewish man, says, nope, the gospel is freely given to all, and all who receive it should be received freely into this thing. James speaks these things, and in verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, And so they send them out with this message, this good news to the Gentiles that no, you don't have to come under Jewish law to be part of the family of God. Huge, huge, huge moment. And James is the one. James is the one who cuts through it as this pillar of the church. Paul talks about him being a pillar of the church in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace given to me, and they gave me the right hand of fellowship. So when Paul was called to be an apostle, he used to be a terrorist against the church. He's converted, and who's going to believe it, right? Who's going to believe it? James is one of the few that will talk with him and then says, no, he has apostolic authority, let's receive him in. So he's this respected pillar. He also is this unifying leader. We saw that in Acts chapter 15 as he renders the official decision that no, this new family of faith is going to be Jew and Gentile. We're going to pull them together, Acts chapter 15. Now here, Jesus, we also see that James, as we think, read through the book of James and we read through Acts chapter 15, we see that James is a bit of a justice warrior. I know that term is politically charged right now, but I think it's the right term to use. James pulls no punches on the social implications of kingdom living. We're going to see that in James. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking theology in, in the abstract sense, but thought, theology in the practical sense, that if you're a Christian, you care about other people and that they're treated well issues of justice. And he doesn't pull any punches. He goes for the jugular regularly in the book of James to lay it on the line that if you don't act this way justly towards people, you're not a Christian. You're offending God if you don't act justly. Let me give you some examples. If you, dispa- you speak disparagingly about people different than you, you deny the faith, James 1.26. Social action on behalf of widows and orphans is required to be part of this religion, James 1.27. Treating people, treating rich people better than poor people offends God, James 2, 1 through 13. Seeing a brother or sister in need and doing nothing means you aren't a Christian, James 2, 18 through 26. Your faith is dead, it's worthless. Failing to be neighborly provokes God, who is able to destroy you, James 4, 11 and 12. Material riches can get into your heart, causing you to take advantage of those that are less affluent than you, and that will take you to hell, James 5, 1 through 6. So James, like Jesus, what we saw in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, is very much concerned with ethics, with treatment of people, with the defense of the poor, with the care of the immigrant. And he's an equal opportunity offender. You're going to see this book, just like the Sermon on the Mount, cut right through the divide of Republican and Democrat, conservative and liberal. This comes way before that. This is the Word of God that's going to confront everybody in whatever camp they're in. So at times you're going to hear passages and statements from Jesus that are going to align really well with what you already think. And then it's going to at times align with things that actually people you reject think, right? And so it's going to cut across all of that and we're going to be tested. 
in terms of whether we will receive his words or not, or will we let sort of some of our political ideologies color, color it. James is going to cut through all of that. He's pre-all of that. He's got no agenda other than to serve the Lord. And so we'll have things that we have to receive that we agree with and some that challenge us in ways that maybe we've neglected. And ultimately, James himself calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to know who's writing this book, that's who it is. And again, he doesn't leverage the fact that he's one of the key leaders of the church. He doesn't leverage that. He doesn't talk about being the brother of Jesus. He really lays himself in a real humble position of going, you know what, you want to know the most important thing about me is not who my half-brother was, not my position in the world, not my position even in the church, but my relationship to God, and I'm his servant. I'm the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that he puts those two together is profound because he puts them together as equals. My brother, Jesus, is God. He's the Lord and he's the Christ. Lord meaning he's the master. Jesus meaning the historical guy that I grew up with. Christ, which means Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's who fundamentally James wants him to be known for. One historian named Josephus, an early Jewish historian, says that he was called James the Just because he was just known for his just dealings with everybody, his ethical treatment of everybody, even his enemies. A second century historian named Hegesippus, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Justin can correct me later, he wrote that James was often found alone in the temple with his knees begging for God to forgive the Jewish people. And that he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that he, they became hard like those of a camel. So they used to call him old camel knees. He spent so much time praying that his knees were just jacked up. And he was known by that. He was known as a man of prayer, and particularly prayer for his enemies. Hegesippus puts this, writes this about his death, and it's hard to tell because when you get to some of the deaths of the apostles and some of these early leaders, there's a lot of legend that works its way in. But I'm just going to read it because I think it speaks to speaks to at least the kind of man that he is. So the details, it's hard to say, but I think it does speak to what James's reputation is down through history. He records the following about James's death. James the Just is so res- well-respected by even the non-Christian Jews that when James tells them Jesus is the Savior and some of the ruling class become believers. So his reputation actually was persuasive. This worried the Jewish leaders who begged James to speak to the crowds. The Jewish leaders take James to the summit of the temple where, where the crowd can see him and hear him and they cry out in a loud voice, we are bound to obey you as you are just. The people are confused and following the dead man named Jesus. Tell us about this crucified Jesus. So they're giving him a platform to mock him, to talk about Jesus, just to mock him because he's dead. And look what James says. James calls out loudly, why do you ask me about Jesus? He sits in heaven at the right hand of God and will return on the clouds of heaven. Many of the people are convinced then and then and there that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and start praising him on the spot. So it backfires, right? He starts preaching the gospel. The leaders are beside themselves. They shout to the people, Oh dear, the just man is confused himself. And they throw James down from that height, from the Temple Mount. But he's not killed. So the leaders start stoning him. James does what he has always done. He kneels down all mangled, and asks God to forgive the Jews. The stoves continue to batter his body as a priest yells, Stop! What are you doing? The just one is praying for us. A launderer took his club, used to beat clothes, hurled it at James' head, and the just one finally died. 
So that's the story of how James the Just died. And again, it's hard to tell the details on that, but it speaks to James's reputation as a good, godly, just man who led with humility and conviction, who cared about justice and righteousness and about the people of God. So that's who's writing this letter. That's the tone, that's the spirit, that's the heart of the man God chose to write this letter. So the second question then is, who is this letter to? And we get this second part of the verse, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. We have some questions. There's some debates on who he's referring to. Who is he writing to? Who is this for? Who's the original audience? It helps us to know the original audience because then we'll know how we, as the secondary audience, are to read it. So there's three potential answers. One, is it ancient scattered Jews? Back when the kingdom of Israel was in its height, it began to decline. The northern, it split into two. It split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 722, and the people were dispersed. The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer until 586 B.C., and it fell to Babylon, and the people were dispersed. So is he speaking to the ancient Jews who have been dispersed across the Roman Empire? Now it's the Romans. It was the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks, now the Romans. And God's people, the Israelites, are scattered everywhere. Interestingly, everywhere they go, they start synagogues, and that becomes a pretty significant place for Jesus, for Paul to then begin to ministry. So God actually uses that dispersion that was a judgment to set up cultures centuries later to receive the gospel. So that's interesting how God redeemed that. So that's one possibility. Is it the scattered tribes of Israel from hundreds of years ago? Or is it the scattered, the recently scattered Jerusalem Christians? In, Roman, in Acts chapter 8, Stephen is killed. Partially with Paul's participation, Paul is going and chasing down Christians and the Christian church that's so big in Jerusalem gets spread everywhere and they plant churches. Antioch, Damascus, even Rome. Some of the most impressive and fruitful churches weren't started by apostles, but were started by refugees on the run. Which might still be the case today that maybe God would use refugees to go plant healthy churches in strange places. But that's how so much of the early church The gospel spread through persecution. Is he writing to them? Scattered Christians. Scattered Jewish Christians. Or it's possible that maybe he's speaking to any and all Christians. That he's actually using Old Testament language with great affection to now speak that all people are now part of God's people. All people are part of God's people because there's really only three discernible tribes. I think Justin pointed this out to me. At this point, the 12 tribes are just lost. Nine of them are lost. You can't trace them. You don't know where they are. They've been too far gone for too long. So for him to speak of the 12 tribes would be a bit of a slap in the face unless he means something greater than that, which is, I think, any Christian is now grafted into this people of God. So I think he's using Jewish language, perhaps, to speak to all. And during that time when the, the nation was scattered, people would often speak of, Jewish leaders would often speak of the 12 tribes as being that which the Messiah would restore, that he would bring a restoration of God's people. So I think potentially it's this third option where Jesus is speaking, where James is speaking about now everyone. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. So let's just praise You know that song? which is speaking about Gentiles, non-Jewish people, all of us get to be brought into this family of faith that God started a long time ago and is fulfilling in Jesus. I think perhaps he's using Jewish terms to speak of a people that are in exile, that aren't yet home yet, like the old Israelites of old, and now you've been grafted in because of Christ. I love what Lincoln Duncan says. He says, Now scholars debate the particulars of this issue, 
But it is very clear that the 12 tribes here is a designation not of Jews or even of Jewish Christians only, but of all Christians. And more specifically, of the Christian church. James is taking the language of the Old Testament and applying it to the New Testament church. And is, in fact, he's taking a very old title of the fullness of God's people that stems from their time in Israel and their times in the wilderness, and he's applying it to Christians. You're exiles in this world. We've always been exiles in this world. And so with great affection, I think he may be speaking. Perhaps all three of these levels work, right? The dispersion, scattered Jews at the time, maybe all Christians are now part of this people of God, are now part of Abraham's family. They are the Lord's 12 tribes. They are the Lord indeed who has brought them together but has not yet brought them home. They're in dispersion. They're under Roman rule. And I think, just, I think this is interesting, is that when we think of the people of God, we think of tribes. And we think of tribes that have been dispersed. And I actually think because of where we live here, that many of our Native American brothers and sisters may be able to give us some insight on what it looks like to be a tribal people and what it looks like to live a bit in exile, right? That actually, it's not white Europeans that this book is about, but it's about a tribal people, an ethnic people, who live a tribal way of life that God is now bringing people into this that Paul, or that James then draws us into. These people that are in dispersion, that have lost their culture, so to speak, and have now brought, been brought together by Christ to journey through this world towards home. The third, thing I want, the third question I want to answer is this, why is it written? And here's why. Here's why I think it is written. It's to remind struggling Christians who feel like they're far from home, maybe feel like their Savior has left them, to remind them of whose they are. Jesus is only mentioned two times in this book, which is sometimes why this book has gotten some criticism for not being as Christian as it ought to be. But actually, the word Lord is used 15 times, and the word God is used 17 times in just 808 verses, and all of it having to do with a God who gives wisdom, a God who perseveres through trials, a Jesus that you belong to, a Jesus that will judge on the last day. And even James, at the very beginning, tells us who he is. I belong to Christ. I belong to God and to Christ. And I think permeating this whole letter is the reminder of remember whose you are. Remember who you are. Have living faith in the one that you belong to. Remember who you are. It's like in The Lion King, right? Simba, remember who you are, right? And it changes the whole trajectory of his life, right? Because then the second thing is to instruct struggling Christians to live who they are. Be who you are. You belong to the Lord Christ. You're his servant. You are a servant of the Lord Christ, just like me, and I want you in this time of exile and struggle and persecution to live out your identity in Him. Have a living faith. Here's an outline of the book of James that I think will be helpful for us. This book is notoriously difficult to outline. A guy named Peter Davids, a commentator, uh, he comes up with this. I think this is the best way to sort of think through the themes because it's all just so all over the place. So this might help us. you got the intro in one one, and then you have three themes that are introduced and cycled through two times. One is trials and temptation. That's a theme that runs kind of through the book. Trials and temptations. What happens when you take a Christian and poke them with trials and temptations? What comes out? How do they respond? Are they real? You can tell. 
by what happens when trials and temptations poke the kingdom citizen. Also, wisdom, and particularly wisdom in relation to speech. God's speech, God's wisdom that comes to us, but then the wisdom that comes out of us. How do we speak about other people? So wisdom and words is the second theme. And then riches and poverty. What do we do when we have resources? Do we use it for the sake of others? And when we don't have resources, do we still trust in the Lord? So riches and poverty, their relationship to each other, people in different categories. The kingdom citizen responds a certain way when they're poked with riches and poverty. Then in chapter 2, verses, chapter 2 verse 1 through 5.18, he deals with those same issues in reverse order and unpacks them. He gives illustrations. He gives biblical examples. He gives logical arguments, unpacking them. And then he pulls in so many other themes as well. And so this is a very loose outline, but it ends up becoming a bit of a chiasm. If you can remember what chiasm is, it gives a little bit of a structure of a chiasm. And then we have a short conclusion at the very end about bringing people out of sin into eternal life and rescuing them and what a joy it is to be part of rescuing sinners from their sin. That's what you have at the conclusion. So we're going to watch for these themes over and over because what we're going to find is that living faith will pass the pain test trials and temptations. A living faith will pass the words test, what they do with God's words and how they use their words. Living faith will pass the social test. How do we deal with money, with wealth and poverty, and how do we treat one another with resources? Living faith passes the social test. And throughout this book, we have this vivid expectation of judgment that the Lord knows, the Lord Jesus knows, and He will bring everything right. He will bring justice. He will tip the scales in all the right ways. He will bring justice. There's over 40 allusions to the Old Testament. There's over 20 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. So as we go through this, you're going to be like, we heard this already. This sermon is really just ripping off Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and just preaching it again. Like James is taking so much from the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking allusions from the Old Testament. There's over 50 imperatives, which means commands. And he focuses primarily on practical theology. Not just the things we think. He's assuming a lot of those things have already been taught. Now that you know those truths about God and the Bible and Christian living, I'm calling you to have a practical theology. Have your beliefs express themselves in how you live. So this is a very practical book that we will have in front of us. It's notoriously difficult to identify a flow and structure. It feels random and disconnected, but I think these three themes are the main driving themes of what a living faith is about. Lastly, I want to close with this. I think that this book it dispels three insidious myths about true religion. The first myth is that trials are always bad. We all are tempted in our flesh to think that trials are bad. The very next verse, he's going to start very next, verse 2, about rejoicing in trials. The reality is that living faith recognizes that trials are not always bad. They produce something good to those with living faith. Living faith has a way of being able to take a trial and spin it on its head by the grace and power of God to turn it into something good, that it produces something good. Let me just read the very next verses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know this. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials always end up 
reversing and being a positive for those with living faith. May not be able to see it in the moment, doesn't always feel good, but you can count it joy because you know that trials were going to work out for good. God's going to flip them in your favor. And looking back one day, you will see how God used that painful thing for your good. So myth number one, trials are always bad. Myth number two is that salvation is only about what you know. That true religion is all about what you know. It's all about mental assent. What James will tell us is that no, knowledge expresses itself in transformed motives and words and works. He's going to call it wisdom. He's going to call it wisdom. Wisdom from above produces things. So it's not just that you say the right things, you've prayed the right prayer, you've signed the right thing. It's about what has that knowledge produced now in you? Has it transformed you? Let me give you an example. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So just knowing the right things that doesn't transform you into fruits of righteousness is not true faith. So salvation is only about what you know. No, that knowledge expresses itself in a transformed life. Myth number three is that religion is a private matter. Religion is a private matter. It's just between me and God. James says no. We are all part of an interconnected financial, spiritual economy, and we have corporate responsibilities. That to have a living faith means that you have responsibilities to brothers and sisters. Obligations. It's not purely a private matter. What you do with your money, with your time, with your relationships. No, you surrendered that. You're a slave to Christ, like he said in verse 1. I belong to Christ. He's Lord. If he's Lord, he's Lord over all of it. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well filled, and, and, and filled without giving him the things he needs for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Your religion is not a private matter. If you've got a brother or sister in Christ and they need something, and you just say words and send them off with no inclination at all that you have an obligation to help them, that's not Christianity. It's not what Jesus started. Religion is not merely a private matter. Those myths came. Those Mark Dever's sermon in 1995 helped me with, see those myths, so I need to quote my sources there. He helped me see that. I think that's right. He's going to explode three myths that are prominent in our culture, are they not? Keep your religion private. It's just about what you know, and trials are bad, right? Jesus is like, nope. They're, James is like, nope. It's the exact opposite. So conclusion, how should we receive this book's instruction? This is what I want us to think about for the next few months as we go through this book. Let us view ourselves as servants and exiles of Christ. Let's join James in that humble posture of going, I don't belong to myself. My credentials, my worldly credentials, my successes, they don't mean anything. All that matters is my humble submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us view ourselves as servants and exiles in this world, like humble James with no boasting. Let's also remember whose we are. 
that we belong to God and Christ, who gives good gifts, who gives salvation, and who judges, who judges our works, judges our faithfulness. Let us receive trials with joy. Every Christian in the New Testament goes through trials. I think of James, or I think of Paul and Barnabas in the Philippian jail, singing praises overnight, and it converts a jailer, right? Ends up converting a jailer. Like, trials are part of it. Trials are how God moves his mission forward. Marks every Christian in the New Testament. And we can have joy because resurrection. If the murder of the Son of God by his creation can be flipped to be the salvation of that creation, then certainly he can take whatever trials that you're going through and flip them, redeem them, right? Let us put word, let's put wisdom into action. Let's put wisdom into action. It seems like there's so much overlap in the book of James between wisdom and the work of the Holy Spirit. That the word of God that comes in and the fruits of that word of God are so tied with the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see that through James. And when he's speaking of wisdom, he may also be speaking of the word of God being applied by the Spirit of God in a people. The Spirit, the fruits of wisdom seem to match so closely with the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The empowering of wisdom seems to look so much similar to the powering of the Holy Spirit. So let us let the Spirit motivate us into action. And then let us embrace living faith in community. This book is surprisingly church-centric. He speaks of brothers, he speaks of elders, he speaks of gatherings, which sounds like church. So much of this book has to be done in community, has to be done with people that you know and love, you know their needs, their brothers and sisters who have needs how you speak about them, how you treat the fact that some of them make more money than other people. Some of them have needs, some of them don't, and you have obligations within a covenant community to serve, and you have an obligation to elders to take prayer requests to them and to receive their prayers. And so there's a community aspect, a church-centered requirement that goes with this book. And above all, let us receive Jesus Christ. Let us receive Jesus Christ, just as James did. Skeptical his whole life, until he encountered Christ, and Christ graciously came to him and called him to himself. And that's the same thing that's happening today, that we're all on the outside looking in. We've all rejected Christ, but he comes to us through the word and calls us to receive him, to put our trust in him, to turn from our sins, to turn from our own way of doing things, and to put our trust in him, to repent of our sins, put our trust in him, and make him Lord of everything. And then the genuineness of that will be proved through trials, through wisdom and words, through riches and poverty, to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this book that we're about to enter into. God, we uh, pray that you would give us a humility like James to receive these words. God, we pray that you would allow these words to confront us where we need to confront it, where we are not being consistent with our confession. Lord, help us to receive those hard words and not just sort of deflect them or become callous to them, but allow them to do the surgery in our hearts that needs to happen. God, I pray that you would enable by your spirit the ability to respond to trials, uh, wealth and poverty, wisdom and our words. God, we pray that by your spirit, you would enable us to be living, breathing Christians, that we would be what we are, that we would live whose we are, and that you would dispel these myths that our hearts are so prone to believe. God, help us to live this out. We pray that this journey through this book would, be, would do the kind of surgery it needs to do, that we might be healthier and stronger, and that the word of God might go forth to those who have not yet heard it. In Jesus' name we pray.
Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.